to Med, Medical Education for the Practicing Clinician. Today, our guest is Dr. Amy Locke. Dr. Locke is a family physician, and in November, she was named the Chief Wellness Officer for University of Utah Health. She's also the Executive Director of the University of Utah Health Resiliency Center, which is designed to foster wellness and resilience for all employees. Dr. Locke completed her undergraduate studies at Indiana University, followed by her medical degree and residency training from the University of Michigan Medical School. She then served as faculty at the University of Michigan until 2015, where she was the Director of Integrative Family Medicine and then joined the University of Utah in 2015. Her experiences are focused on preventative medicine and nutrition, the goal of bringing the best of conventional and integrative medicine together to prevent and treat illness. So my first question is that Utah is a long way from the Midwest. So how'd you end up coming here from um, Michigan? Well, I had always thought of the Mountain West as a great place to go on vacation. Mm -hmm. And when my husband was, had a colleague that moved here and started talking about how great uh, Salt Lake was and the University of Utah, um, we started looking into the programs here. And on one of those conversations, I met Robin Marcus, who has been at the University of Utah for quite a long time and was the chief wellness officer until recently. Mm -hmm. And so through conversations with her, I got very excited about the possibilities um, for thinking about uh, wellness here at Utah. And so that combination of really fantastic job opportunities and lots of places to have fun was a good draw. So obviously the field of family medicine is quite large. What brought you into or interest in wellness as your specialty within family medicine? You know, that's an interesting question. And I think over the course of your life, you have a lot of different experiences that shape who you are and what brings you to a particular group of interests. But even as a very uh, young child, my family was really interested in nutrition and in prevention. And so those kind of foundational beliefs, I think, made it such that when I went into medical school, I sought those opportunities out. And so had an opportunity to learn a lot more about prevention and wellness going through training, mm -hmm. um, which was great. And so to me, if you just started from scratch and you're like, okay, we have a population of people and we want them to not get disease, then you would spend a lot of time and resources thinking about prevention and thinking about ways to keep them healthy rather than wait till they get sick and then start treating them. And so, you know, medicine has really taken the role of treating disease, mm -hmm. whereas we've kind of left that public health stuff and that prevention stuff to others. And I think it's a really unique time in medicine to really reimagine the future of how do we think about the health of populations. Mm -hmm. um, and I think what's interesting in healthcare is also thinking about the well-being of the people that work in healthcare. And so that's kind of where the Resiliency Center built up in the Office of Wellness and Integrative Health. Mm -hmm. You know, that hadn't even been thought of when I joined our group five and a half years ago. And so we do know that people who take care of themselves are more effective at helping other people take care of themselves. Mm -hmm. um, we also know that they're more compassionate and they make less errors and um, are more effective. And so it's a natural fit of those interests in thinking about kind of whole person wellness um, to really dive deep into the caregiver well-being. Right. Yeah. So I graduated from med school in 2008 and I was thinking back on my time there. 
I honestly don't remember this being a topic of conversation at the med student level of how to take care of yourself or even when I started residency here in pediatrics. And I don't really know why that is, but what do you think? Like, I feel like this is a more recent phenomenon that we've come to recognize that, you know, medical students and practice physicians need a little bit of help here sometimes. Yeah, you know, it definitely is something that has kind of galvanized uh, physicians and healthcare systems nationwide in the last few years of thinking about burnout and thinking about uh, caregiver well-being. You know, the article that took the triple aim and kind of expanded that into the quadruple aim of including healthcare uh, worker well-being alongside population health, uh, patient experience, and value kind of cost mm-hmm. analysis is now quite a number of years old. But I think the reason maybe that that needs so much focus is that as a profession, right alongside many of our other healthcare colleagues, we are really good at kind of setting emotion aside, getting work done. Um, There is something to be said for thinking you can do all sorts of things, uh, even if maybe you ordinarily wouldn't be able to. And so I think that the things that make people successful in medicine are often also the things that set them up for problems down the line. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And even just thinking about what you said before about wellness and prevention just made me think right away about how we compensate physicians and what is the big bucks and it's surgery and, you know, fixing things that way. It's not preventing your patient from becoming, helping prevent them from becoming obese in the first place or talking to them about exercise. And I feel like that maybe is part of the problem. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, what do you need to help someone change their lifestyle? Mm -hmm. Um, It's not the same things that you need to do procedures or to, um, to kind of fix things, so to speak. And so we've kind of constructed a healthcare system that rewards people um, for seeing patients as fast as possible and as frequently as possible and to do as many things to them as possible. So the kinds of things that really work for prevention are motivational interviewing, kind of conversations where you really sit and understand someone's story and how their nutrition and sleep and movement and stress interplay with their family experience and their community experience? Um, What are their kind of, how is their spiritual health? Like those things take long conversations and can be complicated. And so that doesn't lend itself well to a healthcare system where we just want to see people as fast as possible. And we've kind of created this model where patients expect, like, I'm going to come in, I'm going to see my physician for 10 minutes, I'm going to get a prescription, it's all going to be good. Right. Um, and there are conditions for which that is wonderful. Mm-hmm. You know, if you have a bacterial sinus infection, getting an antibiotic, that's really, really great. Right. Um, but it doesn't lend itself well to the treatment of chronic or prevention of chronic disease. Right. Yeah. I'm thinking last week I saw an adolescent for a first visit who was here for something else, like an injury to her ankle, but she also happened to be 300 pounds. And it was like, this is the elephant in the room it's not something that she brought up as a concern, but I felt like it was my duty to say like, Hey, this is a bigger problem. We don't really have it in the five minutes I have to spend with you to talk about it. And as a doctor, that's, that's hard because you want to do the best for the patients, but you don't feel like it's necessarily set up that way to do that. Yeah. And adolescents are a great example because there's so much psychosocial stuff going on. There's so much risk-taking 
um, that could be mitigated by conversation and a trusting relationship. Mm -hmm. And you often only see them when they come in for a sprained ankle or a strep throat. And so um, having a system in place to then begin to have some psychosocial assessment and um, kind of discussion around uh, risky behaviors. Yeah. So, so I wanted to talk some about burnout. So I feel like colloquially people say all the time, I'm burned out. Are you burned out? But no one really talks about it in more of a, you know, what's its actual definition. So, and I know there is one for physicians. Did you want to just kind of go into what the different factors of burnout are? Yeah. The official definition of burnout, which is kind of from the 1970s uh, literature, uh, psychology literature, um, is defined by three categories. So emotional exhaustion, uh, depersonalization, and then a lack of sense of personal accomplishment. And so um, a person can have one or more of those kind of symptoms, so to speak, of burnout. They can come all together. Um, Emotional exhaustion is often the first that people experience. And if you just think about you have a long clinic day, you've got people for whom their, their needs are outstripping your ability uh, mm-hmm. to manage them, or it's just very emotionally taxing. Um, you know, emotional exhaustion is something that is a normal part of, of work in healthcare. And so it's kind of how we manage it. And so um, I think when people talk about burnout, that's often what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. And um, Depersonalization is when you've gotten to the point where that emotional exhaustion is so steep that you've started to separate um, your patients or the people, your colleagues um, that you're dealing with and starting to think of them less like humans and more like objects. Mm -hmm. So you're kind of taking that personal side of things away and you're just kind of thinking, you know, the knee in room seven. Right. Um, Instead of I'm a person who happens to have knee pain, I'm now just the knee. Mm -hmm. And that's a protective mechanism. So the less you're connected, then you're trying to kind of protect yourself from that emotional uh, trauma. Mm-hmm. And then the third is, is often when things get really bad, which is you just feel like it, I'm not doing anything. I'm just wasting my time. I'm not helping people. I'm not fulfilling my job obligations. Mm-hmm. And of course, burnout is not unique to physicians. Right. Um, it can be in all sorts of professions. Um, but it historically is thought of, uh, with regard to work. And the rate, so I know the rate for physicians is quote, maybe I'm wrong, but from what I've read is about 50% and it seems to be really variable depending on the specialty you're in. Do you know if it's that high in other fields or is there something in particular about medicine that makes it so high? Medicine tends to be higher than other professions. And so that 50% is based, is most often quoted is from an article by Tate Shanafeld, who's at Stanford. Yeah. And he was looking at a combination of emotional exhaustion and depersonalization. So if you just look at emotional exhaustion rates, they're around 30%. Um, so for the University of Utah, the best data we have is that emotional exhaustion number. Mm-hmm. And our rates are around, at baseline, are around 30%. Okay. which is the same as the national average. And is that um, the same in other fields like teaching or being a lawyer or other like professional fields? It's quite a bit higher. Okay. Um, I think that the dentistry literature suggests that dentists might even be worse. Mm-hmm. Um, nursing rates, maybe slightly less, but again, it depends on how you're comparing. Right, right. Um, you know, the burnout rates right now 
in the midst of COVID are extremely high, which you would expect. Right. Um, with our um, hospital groups in November, which is the last time we measured, we were running at around 75% just of emotional exhaustion. So going from 30% to 75% in one year with some groups being 100%. Wow, that's incredible. And we will measure again in February, but I would guess that things got much worse after November and that now things are starting to improve mm-hmm. a little bit. Yeah. And just exactly. Yeah. I feel like personally get the vaccine is obviously the biggest part of the personal improvement. Like I was joking with my family that that's like the best Christmas present I ever got ever was getting that shot in my arm, but it doesn't take away the worrying about your patients who don't have the shot yet worrying about your, you know, my parents and the family members, loved ones that don't have their shot. And I think that's at least personally, that feels like a big part of that emotional exhaustion is. Yeah. And the other thing about COVID is that, you know, work-related burnout in healthcare has been a problem for a long time. Mm-hmm. But for most people, you were protected by your by your outside of work life. Mm-hmm. Whereas right now, outside of work life is equally stressful right. <laughs> as your inside of work life, if not more so for some people. And so you don't have that give. Um, you know, you're you've got kids trying to learn from home or maybe going to school and then maybe not. You've got elderly parents that people are worried about. You've got, you know, a restriction in access to things that w- might have brought you comfort or allowed you to manage stress in the past. You know, gyms are closed, restaurants are closed, travel's restricted. Right. And so it's it's a really challenging time. You know, politics has been really intense. Um, been a lot of upheaval around uh, race and gender. And so, you know, it's just that whole package together um, means that, yeah, people are super burnt out. Yeah. And that's a saying. One thing I want to raise in this episode is that you're not alone. If you're having a hard time, you're not alone. It's more as I don't know anyone who's not in the physician field. Like you said, some groups is up to a hundred percent. And I definitely see that amongst my friends and, and colleagues. Right. And I think if you say, okay, we're not going to use the word burnout. We're just going to say, who's emotionally exhausted right, right now? Who's exhausted? Right. Emotionally exhausted? Okay, that's about 100% right. of people. Yeah. I mean, every once in a while, you meet someone who's doing fine, but but it is just really normal. Like, that's the normal response right. to the events that have transpired. Right. Yeah. And what at the University of Utah is being done to address this? Like, in your role as the chief wellness officer or more at the resiliency center, what what can be done? Well, I think that, you know, at the Resiliency Center, we often talk about tiers of, of support mm-hmm. um, because it's, it's like you said, we need to acknowledge where we're at. And I think the most important thing is to not think that this is something that we can just have the Resiliency Center deal with. Right. Like, oh, if you're struggling, you're going to go talk to the Resiliency Center, which of course is fine. We're happy to talk with you. And we've got a great team of people who right. do a really fantastic job of providing one-on-one support. But I think most importantly is that we really just be honest and acknowledge where we're at. Mm-hmm. And particularly for professions where talking about emotion is not something that we do. And you know, I think about my kids who are 17 versus my parents' generation. Like there's a, a lot of difference in social norms about talking about feelings. 
right? So, you know, 17 year olds are like, oh, we just talk about feelings. And the, you know, the 70 year olds are like, we don't talk about feelings. Right, right. <laughs> so I think it is an opportunity to really kind of try to move past that. Mm-hmm. Um, and in healthcare, we are really good at trying to fix things. So when someone comes to you, whether it's a student or a patient or a colleague um, and says, I'm really struggling, the the natural response is to say, well, it's going to be fine. Like Mm -hmm. we've got the vaccine now. It's going to be great. Right. And so you're kind of minimizing that person's experience Mm -hmm. that right now things are terrible. And so the more we can acknowledge the reality of right now and just sit with that, um, the easier it is to work through those emotions. Yeah. And I think that comes to um, self-compassion is really important as physicians and other healthcare <laughs> workers, because I feel like as a physician, we're good at being compassionate with our patients, at least most of the time, yep. you know, with the yeah. burnout piece, maybe that's part of it, not as much, but it's harder to be compassionate with yourself because you feel like you should be able to care for everyone, care for your kids, care yeah. for your patients and just like suck right. it up and do it. Right. And so in the resiliency center, we've been trying to kind of get this message out of three things. So acknowledging where we're at right now, mm-hmm. um, connection, and then support. And so we talked about the acknowledge piece. The connection piece is just recognizing that human interaction and connection is really protective mm-hmm. and allows us to manage stress. Um, so we've been talking a lot about in the resiliency center lately about the idea of a stress cycle mm-hmm. of stress happens, you kind of manage the stress and then you kind of move through it and move on. Or you don't, and it just kind of builds and builds. And then you start getting all things, sorts of things start happening. You know, people start getting mental health issues, start getting physical health issues because that stress is just kind of building, building, building. Right. Um, But if we can work through it and process that stress, then we can just kind of move on. And then of course, new stress comes. And then we manage that and then we go through, but human connection is one of those major protective factors that help people manage that stress. Mm -hmm. And for many people, they're not connecting the same ways that they would have for sure pandemic Um, because we're limited in terms of social interaction. Potentially we're already on zoom much of the day. So we don't want to necessarily do more zoom. Right. Right. Um, You know, that kind of hallway, Hey, how's it going? kind of time is really restricted. Mm -hmm. Um, Even in the clinics where we actually are physically present, we're all sequestered in different spots, right? Right. We're not going to sit next to each other in the team room anymore. Like we're all kind of off in exam rooms, kind of doing virtual visits or um, kind of managing our our day, even for in-person, much more separate than we were before. So kind of acknowledging where we're at, connecting, and then providing support. Mm-hmm. So kind of knowing the resources that are available for people who are really struggling. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, when I think about the, what we do in wellness integrative health, I think about our kind of three main populations. Mm-hmm. So one is our employees, the next is our patients, and the third is our community. Mm-hmm. Um, and while the Resiliency Center really focuses on employees, we do in wellness integrative health think about those larger communities. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I'm excited to see is that this recognition of struggling and an increase in resources for all three of those groups. Mm -hmm. So the Resiliency Center, we're doing way more one-on-one and group consultation, uh, group check-ins than we were a year ago, Mm -hmm. like many times more. Um, 
But even in the patient and community, we're seeing increasing resources like the Safe UT app, which used to be just for adolescents, mm -hmm. has now expanded to frontline workers. Mm -hmm. um, the Uni Crisis Line, which we have often used for people in crisis, has been expanded to also have a Uni Warm Line so that you can contact um, a therapist just by calling that number. Hmm. Um, I know that. Is it free? Yeah. And uh, IHC has a similar line. Hmm. Um, and so we're starting to recognize that by providing these resources, we can really help provide support. Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, sometimes things just do get hard enough that we, we really need to have professional support, not right. just kind of support from family and friends. Right. Yeah. I think the connection piece has been hard for me and others, like just not being able to see people in person has been one of the hardest parts about COVID and then not knowing when that'll be over. You know, it's just I feel like it's been so damn long. <laughs> it's been nine months, 10 months. It's like, okay, I'm ready to like hug my friends and see my parents, you know? And I know my patients are feeling that yeah. too. Everyone is. Absolutely. And, you know, when I think about patients in particular, like especially into the fall, um, you know, the rates of anxiety and depression are were really skyrocketing, um, partly from social isolation, partly from stress, mm -hmm. um, partly from like, I've been doing this for nine months and I can't take it anymore. Right. And so um, being able to just have a really honest conversation about mental health and expectations Mm -hmm. um, right, for sure. And it's great that the University of Utah has these resources. What about, so some people that listen to our podcast live in like small towns in rural Utah or otherwise other places where they're in private practice, sole practitioner. Are there any resources that you think would apply to those folks either online or elsewhere? Because I think we're lucky that we have this institutional support, but not everyone necessarily has that. Yeah, that's a great question. And I think there, like I was saying before about SafeUT and the Uni Warm and Crisis Line, there are another kind of increase in resources through state medical societies. Um, there's a physician uh, crisis line that um, has been that is a national line, hmm. um, which is just a, which is really solely focused on physicians hmm. um, who are in crisis or need help. Um, let me see if I'm even saying it right physician support line. And so this is, the physician support line is interesting because basically it's psychiatrists who've gotten together to support um, physicians and medical students. But like National Academy of Medicine has a clinician well-being work group um, that kind of shares resources. The AMA has really fantastic resources um, that are available. Um, Utah Medical Association has been kind of collecting resources and then specialty specific um, groups have also been kind of pulling resources together. And, you know, the Resiliency Center external facing homepage does have a link to COVID specific resources mm -hmm. that are available widely. And so anyone can access those sorts of things. Right, not, not just people who are University of Utah faculty. Exactly. And then Accelerate, which is Utah's online learning platform, um, we've been putting a ton of resources there mm -hmm. as well. So um, particularly developing tools that kind of stand alone. So for example, check-ins, we've been encouraging people to do check-ins in groups. So mm -hmm. you're starting your team meeting, you spend a few minutes just connecting 
on a human level. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the tools in the toolkit where you can get a brief article about that and then some tips about how you would do that with your own team. Mm-hmm. And so the self-compassion tool is the one that's coming out next. And um, we already have an emotion coaching tool. So like, how do you sit with someone and acknowledge their grief mm-hmm. or experience without trying to fix it? Mm-hmm. Um, so those tools are available to anyone and are currently hosted on Accelerate. Very cool. Um, one thing is I feel like this isn't all COVID specific. So like you said, the burnout or emotional exhaustion rates went up this much, but a lot of this is from pre-COVID. And what do you think are the things that um, make it hard for physicians to, or you know, more likely for them to become burnout or the things specific? So I think of personally, EMR is the biggest time suck. So, you know, I was talking to a friend who's a lawyer and who bills in 15 minute increments. I'm like, we don't do that in medicine and you don't charge for responding to patient inquiries, whether it be by phone or by email through my chart, talking to other, you know, specialists about your, your patient. And none of that is built into like, this is the time you do that. And you're paid for that. It's all like unpaid free labor that you do outside of the clinic. For me, I think that's a huge thing. I don't know if that's just my personal experience or what. Yeah, I mean, if you think about clinical medicine, you know, I've only really worked in academic health centers uh-huh. for my career. And, but I have friends who are in private practice and in some ways it's even worse. But what drives revenue is seeing people as fast as possible. Right. Um, and, the, and the less you can do for all the other things, the better. Like you just want to crank people through, do as many procedures as possible. Right. And, you know, healthcare is a business. And so what do you do? You try to get your physicians to see as many people as possible and to bill as high as possible, as fast as possible. But that is at odds with the fact that this is a cognitive thinking job. And if you don't have time to think and really contemplate what the person needs, then that's when you start getting that moral distress mm-hmm. of, well, what I, this patient really needs is a complicated conversation around the social determinants of health, but I'm being forced to see them in a 15 minute slot. And yeah, sure, I could see them back next week, but then they can't get a bus ride to come see me because they don't have a car. Right. And so you start to get that moral distress that kind of builds and compounds. And so that's part of what makes the burnout rate so high in medicine you know, already you're making really hard decisions, right? Mm-hmm. So they're all, you know, if you're compassionate and you're listening to people's stories, like that's hard to right. kind of be the, the vessel for that, all of that trauma and, and sadness. Mm-hmm. But then this kind of pressure to do it really fast, right? you know, obviously that's, that is what is driving a lot of the injury in healthcare. And so- yeah. If you come and say, well, well, let's just do yoga or do some breathing exercises. Like that's what makes people so mad is like, that's not going to help. For sure. <laughs> you yeah. know, and obviously those are great coping strategies and they do help, but that's not the big problem. Right. The problem is that we're not all trained in yoga. The problem is that we have created a system that is getting the results that you would expect, which is treadmill. You're trying to treadmill something that is really complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, And then the other thing is that in a health center, it's easy to ask the physician to do things because we often say, yes, I have to pay a nurse to work that inbox, but you will do it for free. It's so true. 
I'll do it at home after my kids are in bed and that don't, won't charge anybody. <laughs> right. Whereas the nurse is not going to do that. Like we do not have nurses up at 3am checking inboxes. Right. We have physicians doing that because we've said to you, it's the moral imperative is for you to provide good care to the patient. 24, seven, 365. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, we're kind of taking advantage of that, of that kind of position of like, yes, I would need to serve. So, and I think we, and so to combine that with a, with a population that's like, oh yeah, I can do it. I'm tough. Right. You know, it's just a setup. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's good. I like hearing you acknowledge that it can't all be solved through self-care. Like there has to be a bigger systems level change for it to, you know, like we can't yoga and meditate our way out of it as doctors. It'll take more than that. Right. And so, you know, in the middle of COVID, like those self-care techniques are the only way you're going to get through. Right. Like (laughs) there is no way to decrease the burden necessarily and make COVID go away. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we've been spending a lot of time talking about self-care in the resiliency center because that's really all you've got. That's the tools for right now. <laughs> right. And, and those tools are good. Right. You know, like dealing with stress is really important, but we also have to change the system. Speaking of that, I'm guessing in the uh, resiliency center, you guys are probably fans of Brene Brown. Do you listen to her at all? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I was listening over the weekend to her podcast about burnout. Have you listened to that one about the secret yeah. to blocking the stress cycle? Is that what you guys have been talking about? We have been talking about that um, podcast quite a bit because they do such a fantastic job of simplifying a really complicated set of ideas. Right. And I think, you know, in, in family medicine, we see people who have trauma associated pain all the time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, history of trauma, kind of personality trait of I'm just going to be fine. I'm going to shove it down. I'll be okay. I'm going to care for everyone else. I'm not going to think about myself. That that can often manifest as physical symptoms, mm-hmm. um, whether it be chronic pain or um, mental illness or other sorts of things. And so I think they do such a fantastic job of talking about, you know, because one of the sisters kind of talks about her her experience with admission for chronic pain and kind of un- mystery diagnosis. Um, so they have done one of the better jobs I've seen of kind of talking about that in an understandable. Yeah. Way. In case you guys are wondering what we're talking about. So the book is called Burnout, The Secret to Unlocking the Stress Cycle. And the authors are Emily and Amelia Nagoski. And the podcast that's on is Brene Brown Unlocking Us. And she's a social worker slash researcher um, who's really, I really like to listen to. So yeah, I found that to be fascinating. And I felt like I needed to listen to it like three times to really get all the info out of it. (laughs) I did take notes, which uh, means it's a good podcast. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, I think. Oh, go ahead. That book arrived for me um, last week. I haven't read it yet, but the one thing I didn't like about that podcast, and I would say I would caution listeners, mm-hmm. is that it, it's very gender focused. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so they kind of give the impression, at least on the back of the book jacket, that this is a female problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that has not been my experience. Yeah. That if anything, men are sometimes enculturated into this idea that I don't share or experience emotion even more than women are. Mm-hmm. And that makes the risk of burnout high. 
um, because you, men also have to manage the stress cycle just like women do. And so I would be cautious to think that there really is a gendered experience that is unique. I would say the other thing that when I think of Brene Brown and kind of really big insights uh-huh. um, in medicine is just thinking about shame yeah, and how the experience of shame really shapes our training and experience. And so I think once you can start to name those experiences, like, oh, I'm feeling shame right now or guilt or mm-hmm. fear. Um, as you start to be able to name those, it allows you to kind of deal with it in a objective way. Mm-hmm. Um, and it takes some of the kind of big, scary pieces out of it. Something to think about. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks to you. Take care.